0: Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, this is the place to find broken and beautiful companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Here, you'll find embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and from different cultures, They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners, just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of Francis and Claire of Assisi with the wonderful religion and culture writer Jonathan Merritt, and I'm happy that you are here with us. Almost everybody knows the name Francis of Assisi. He's featured in garden statuary the world over, surrounded by cement bunnies and bluebirds. He looks very mild-mannered, even spacey. But the real Francis was intense, and he sure knew how to have a good time. Francis Bernardoni, nicknamed Frenchie, was a natural leader, the king of the youth, he picked up the tab for his fraternity's late night rambles. He sang pop ballads in bad French. His parents, Pietro and Pica, were cloth merchants, and they were convinced that young Francis was headed for success. When Assisi declared battle against nearby Perugia, bold Francis galloped out to fight. But Assisi was defeated. Francis was captured, and he spent more than a year locked in a rat-infested prison. When he came home, Francis was a changed young man, a war veteran. His friends couldn't entice him to come out and party with them. Something was wrong. And then Francis walked more than 100 miles to the holy city of Rome, where he traded clothes with a beggar and then gave away his traveling money begging alms for himself? When he walked all the way back home, he began to wander alone through forests and caves. Pica and Pietro were worried. One hot afternoon, Francis stepped into the chill of an abandoned chapel, and he felt different inside. The image of Christ crucified spoke to him from the altar, saying, "'Francis, rebuild my house,' which, as you can see, is falling down. Francis, without a second thought, got right to work on repairs. He threw himself into the project. He moved from his parents' pleasant house and camped out at the little chapel, where he meditated, prayed, and worked. He helped himself to the valuable cloth from his parents' shop and sold it off to fund the project. I mean, he was simply taking for God what was due to God, as he saw it. But Pietro was out of patience. And so, in a public showdown in the middle of a crowded piazza, Francis stripped naked and returned all of his father's clothes to him, declaring God to be his only father. Francis claimed the freedom to follow Jesus anywhere. He was done with the burdens of his family, his friends, his suffocating town. Out on the road, Francis passed a leper, and in a moment of impulsive human mercy, he embraced him, and it was as if he had embraced Christ himself, and Francis felt a measure of healing within his own troubled spirit. Francis had found his one purpose, which was to imitate Christ in every literal way he imagined walking along with Jesus in the 13th century Tuscan countryside. Every day, in each concrete action, large or small, Francis would ask, what would Jesus do here? And when he sensed an answer in that moment, he would act on it for real. He took Jesus's words seriously, literally, and immediately. In the Gospels, Francis read Take nothing for the journey, neither bread nor money, and do not have a spare tunic. And so he refused to buy clothes. He read, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Francis slept under the stars or on the floor of a chapel. And when Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, Francis wouldn't touch money. He wouldn't even soak dried beans overnight. It was too much like worrying. Liberated from possessions and employment, he had plenty of time to care for lepers, to collect stones for church repairs. And as he followed Christ as a free man, his old, cheerful, generous temperament was restored. Life around Francis was weird, but it was never boring. And folks were drawn back to his fun-loving manner. Other brothers left their privileged families to pursue this way of an exuberant Jesus. And of course, the parents of Assisi were outraged as their sons took off to live like this radical Francis, without property, without coins, without plans, like Jesus. When Francis preached in the sunshine, among the audience was a feisty teenaged girl named Claire. She heard Francis speak of imitating Jesus and she decided to join the crew of brothers. So one midnight, Claire slipped away from home and ran to the Franciscans' forest campout. Claire left it all to join the Jesus Revolution, but her ambition to subsist in the wild with the guys was not to be. As a medieval woman on her own, really her only option was to live as a nun. So that is what she did. But other women joined her in the cloistered community, and together they imitated Jesus in their own way, praying, healing, and counseling. Together, Francis and Claire expressed the fullness of Christ, each imitating him in a different way. You could say that Francis imitated Christ in his vigorous, earthbound action, that Claire imitated Christ in her acts of care and contemplation. The disciples got tired, eventually, of the never-ending camping, the repurposed burlap tunics. They argued that it was time to get practical, to think about sustainability, and they morphed into an established religious order, the Franciscans, that still exists today. But Francis himself would have none of it. Jesus hadn't changed at all. Why ever would he? Going all the way takes grit, not compromise, he argued. Claire, too, held to her simple vows. And to the end of their lives, Francis and Claire never lost their zeal to live just like Jesus. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, come on by my website, com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. Now, for a conversation about Francis and Claire of Assisi with Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan Merritt is here to talk about Francis and Claire with me. Jonathan is a terrific writer on religion, culture, and politics. His latest book is called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Jonathan is a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and you can find his work all over the place, from the New York Times to BuzzFeed to Christianity Today. Jonathan, thank you for coming to talk with me about Francis and Claire.
1: Oh, it is my pleasure. I'm excited about this.
0: So, how are you like Francis, and how are you different?
1: Oh gosh, how am I like Francis? Well, I'm a troublemaker, so that's <laughs> one. Yeah. I, I I love nature. I I think sometimes I have this kind of anti-establishment impulse. I I like uh, to do things that. People don't understand, and I often find that that my way of following Jesus seems a little curious. Yeah, I think sometimes people would describe would describe me that way uh, in the way that I I, I often uh, practice my faith. I jump from tradition to tradition. I'm often forging my own way uh, based on where I believe God's leading me. And so in that way, he's always been one of my favorite saints. In fact, if you if you were to come to my apartment, I live at a seminary campus in Manhattan, and I have this beautiful carving of Francis with bird, you know, a bird on his shoulder that I got in South America, and it sits up on my, my mantle. And so uh, I've always loved him.
0: And how are you different, would you say? What are the limits of the comparison?
1: Well, in many ways, I'm different probably in the way you are, uh, you know, the way that you shared in this book that that there is this sort of extreme nature of the way that he that he followed Jesus. That I think for me feels a, a little too far. You know, I don't I'm not I'm not going to be taking a vow of poverty anytime soon or or moving out to the desert or sleeping on the floor and that that's never been that's never really been my calling this kind of um deeply ascetical journey
0: what do you think about this idea of taking Jesus's words literally that was his whole obsession why don't we christians do that more
1: well Anytime somebody says I take the words of Jesus literally, I sort of shrink back, in part because I grew up in a tradition that often said that very thing, and the result was not always all that attractive or appealing in in my view. I think additionally, Jesus, like all wisdom teachers, often seems as if he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He'll say one thing in in one gospel, and the next, there's kind of a tension between it, and you have to to live uh, Jesus's words literally. I want to say which words. So when I read Jesus say, "Unless you hate your father or mother," I go, "Yeah, that's not one I really want to take literally." So. I I like the sentiment and there are times where I go yes I'm I'm about it I'm I I want to take Jesus literally when he says that but I I I also want to take Jesus's words with with appropriate levels of of nuance and thoughtfulness and that's always been the way I've lived my faith.
0: Well and I think it it brings up the question of is it that simple? You know, just because Mm. we see the words in the gospel, is it so simple to know even what they mean and how we are to respond? You know, what does it mean to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I think about like the, what would Jesus do bracelets up until I read this, I would have probably sort of sneered or laughed at that. And yet it is a good question. And it's a question that is an ancient question, and I, I, I didn't know that. So you sort of redeemed, you redeemed that one for me.
0: <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I've been helpful, Jonathan. Well, I want to talk about this saying that I always attributed to Francis, preach the gospel all the time, and if necessary, use words. And I, I always like that because I, too, grew up in a tradition where uh, we were pushed to evangelize and witness at, at every particular time, and it was all about the words that you said and being compelling. But what what do you know about that phrase? I think you've done some thinking about this, haven't you?
1: Well, it's a, it's a super popular quote uh, among Christians these days, in part because the reasons you just you, the reason you just mentioned that it does let people off the hook, and it is often attributed to St. Francis with one problem, we don't have any record of Francis actually saying it. And I, I spent some time uh, recently, was reading a, a biography of St. Francis, and I was shocked in light of this to find that Francis was actually quite a preacher. You know, there was a a quote about him preaching in up to five villages a day, often outdoors, standing on a bale of straw or standing in a doorway. He would climb on a box or up the steps of a, a public building. And I wrote down this quote, his words were neither hollow nor ridiculous, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating the marrow of the heart so that listeners were tuned in with great amazement. And What's interesting wow. is, is that the the life of Francis says, we preach the gospel at all times, which is something that has to happen with words, but not only with words. And so for me, I've always found that to be a, a troubling quote on the one hand. On the other hand, maybe uh, the kind of thing I hope is true, because then I don't have to have any of those Uh, tense conversations where I have to say things that are uncomfortable to say or that I don't really want to say. I don't have to have those kinds of things. I just do what I know to do. And yet I know that the Christian faith would not exist. It cannot exist without words. When you think about the modern Franciscans, why do they exist? They exist because someone said something to someone who said something to to someone someone who said something to someone who said something to them and uh, religion produces progeny with words, but it is uh, the visible expressions of those words' transformative power that makes the gospel credible. And so you need, you need both. I like the sentiment uh, at the heart of it, but uh, I think it can often lead us to a misunderstanding of how I think the gospel goes forward and how I, I think Francis took the gospel forward or his understanding of it in his day.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And he certainly didn't hold back. I mean, you you also hear descriptions of him doing anything he could do to get people's attention. You know, playing the zither, weeping, you know, stripping to his underwear. I mean, he was committed to getting this word, the gospel of of Jesus Christ, out there to the people. So, uh, yeah, he was a pretty unconventional preacher. Well, when when you think about uh, the story of Claire, what did you find interesting about her particular witness?
1: Well, uh, I think I found her much in the vein of many women of her time who wanted to serve God. You know, you 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 have women in this era who were not—they didn't have access to theological education they were never going to serve god by writing tomes uh or being in the academy or leading in the institutional church in uh in a significant way so instead they they pursued god with radical abandon
0: i love her independent mindedness that she's has enough imagination to hear francis preach and ha- has the courage to to follow this way of of being. I, I too think that this her acts of care and healing and counseling. It's so easy to downplay that sort of testimony and that sort of imitation of Christ. So I'm really thankful that she's there because I think. We can easily see Francis out there, you know, boldly preaching and hugging lepers and building churches. And yet Claire shows us the other side, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of, of Christian service.
1: You know, you know, the thing that I, 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 loved about her, you know, I have a, I consider myself a feminist and she was kind of a feminist before feminism existed, because here is a woman who took her, took her own power back. And decided she would determine her own future, that she wouldn't be married off to somebody that she barely knew, that she wouldn't be forced into a life where she would uh, bear children and stay at home. But she wanted to serve God, and she did what was necessary to determine her own destiny. And that the kind of feminine energy that vibrates in her story was so inspiring to me that she did what she could uh, with what she had to become the master of her own destiny in so far as she could. And I, I, I like, I like, you know, there's this, this, this notion that in Francis's life and his teaching, he had this honoring of the feminine and the way that he sends her out almost to begin to do her work. And then she collects uh, these women to do it alongside of her It's like it's like Francis and Claire become kind of the yin and the yang of Assisi. And that to me was really inspiring. And the way you paired them together, I thought was very interesting because, yes, you can look at them individually. But when you look at their witness side by side, you get this kind of both sides of the this energy for ministry uh, arising out of the same place that I think was uh, was Mm -hmm. was just fascinating to me.
0: Well, what do you think Francis and Claire have to say to us, to our world, to our culture today?
1: You know, I love Barbara Brown Taylor. And I've always thought she wrote, she wrote about a saints in one of her early sermons. And she, she called saints eccentric, lopsidedly, love-drunk people. Wow. And I've always thought maybe she was thinking of Francis when she wrote that. Uh, that you you find these people who they're, they are not considered balanced or stable or completely sane by all of their respective communities. They're kind of a throng of oddballs, bold, countercultural, unashamed. They embody what it means to follow Jesus when we're tempted to play it safe, when we're tempted to go with the flow, when we're tempted to opt for acceptability over conviction and commitment and passion.
0: Amen to that. Well, here's to Francis and Claire. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining me to talk about your favorite saints.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: I am in awe of Francis's startling exuberance and of Claire's steadfast courage. And while you'll never find me living out in the woods or shut up in a cloister, these two saints have given me a new perspective on life, one that I've loved trying on with Jonathan. Claire and Francis challenge us to ask ourselves in all seriousness, what would Jesus do right here and right now? And can we do the same? I'd like to think that because of Francis and Claire, we are more willing to take risks, all for the love of Christ, and that we will taste a measure of their trust in God and their joy in life. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and I'm the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Theological Horizons. Come by my website, KarenWrightMarsh.com. You'll find out more about the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast, get show notes, and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. You can download free, printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons, I hope you'll support the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast with a tax-deductible gift to Theological Horizons. Go to theologicalhorizons.org slash Donate on Venmo at theological-horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connection.